0: and welcome to rising we have another great show for you today on this thursday how are you doing brianna i'm doing well robbie and yourself i'm doing just fine i'm going to new york city today uh, after the show taped so i haven't been there in like a year i'm jealous i love new york i miss new york i'm jealous all right (laughs) what are we talking about
1: all right well robbie yesterday jewish peace protesters surrounded the democratic national committee headquarters in dc last night which prompted a lockdown of all U.S. House office buildings after police forcibly removed the demonstrators from blocking the building's exits. Congressman Brad Sherman posted about the scuffle last night, tweeting, I was just evacuated from the DNC after pro-terrorist anti-Israel protesters grew violent pepper spraying police officers and attempting to break into the building. The activists, however, refuted that claim. They said it was police that used pepper spray, not protesters. And they have some photographic evidence that you see on the screen now to back that up. friend of the show and reporter for Semaphore Dave Weigel was at the protest, and he weighed in, saying nobody tried to enter the building. They were trying to block off entrances,
0: but had their backs turned to them. Yeah. Yesterday, more than 500 staffers and political appointees from more than 40 agencies sent a letter to President Biden and his cabinet criticizing the extent of the administration's support for Israel and its war in Gaza. Plus, new Reuters polling released just yesterday finds that a whopping 68 percent of Americans want a ceasefire, including about 75 percent of Americans and 50 percent of Republicans. I think it's 75 percent of Democrats. And uh, excuse of- <laughs> me. Prem, yeah. As Prem Thacker of The Intercept points out, just 4.5 percent of Congress currently support a ceasefire. So Dave Weigel is a pretty straight shooter, not mm-hmm. a...
1: Part- not a leftist ideologue by any stretch yeah. of imagination. Right. Just, but he's very knowledgeable about the left because... So he's if he says it so that, um,
0: that, it you know, it wasn't the Protesters weren't trying to break in, and they weren't pepper spraying anyone. I would tend to believe him.
1: Yeah, so that's the thing. If there was so much video uh, and photographic evidence from it, I mean, that one picture—maybe we can throw it up again—of the police officer literally aiming the pepper spray at protesters. I tweeted last night when it was happening. Does anybody have any other evidence? Of course, it could be multiple pepper spraying events that have happened, no one else has adduced any other images of pepper spraying. And the officer that is pictured there spraying um, the pepper spray also was the same officer in another video who was shown kicking over the memorial candles that these uh, Jewish Voices for Peace protesters had been placed uh, had placed uh, around as a vigil of sorts. Uh, so it does seem to all connect in the timeline. And then I also saw some video evidence, I think that Ryan Grimm had posted, of what the protests actually looked like before the police uh, apparently escalated. And they were locked arms in front of the doors of the building, singing songs and, you know, uh, chanty kind of a songs mm-hmm. about
0: what their goal, political goals are, which is a ceasefire Were there people in the, in the building trying to get out, though? I mean, you can't—
1: Not, not that I yeah. saw. Not that I'm aware. But that also wasn't the allegation. I think part of why this became such a controversy um, is that Congressman Sherman went on afterward, on to um, uh, Abby Phillips' show. Uh, I would actually think we have that clip, and he seemed to have misrepresented what happened. Let's take a look.
2: Yesterday, there were over 200,000 pro-Israel demonstrators with a permit, entirely peaceful. And here you have a demonstration, less than 1,000th as large, that's also getting publicity. And it's getting publicity because uh, their willingness to attack police, as they did with pepper spray, is a force multiplier. A, a, a few demonstrators uh, willing to attack police, getting uh, a fair amount of publicity, whereas the amount of publicity for 200,000 de- peaceful demonstrators, proportionately less. Uh,
1: and I just want to make a note here that we don't know exactly who was responsible for the pepper spray. Uh, but as we continue to report on this story, we'll, we'll learn more. Congressman Brad Sherman, I do thank you for joining us tonight. So. For obvious reasons. People were frustrated about the misrepresentation there. He's, of course, right that the um, uh, pro-Israel peace rally earlier this week was largely peaceful. But the question is whether or not that's because the police didn't make the choice to pepper spray and escalate in that context, as opposed to this other context. There were a number of moments. We saw some near um, the White House about a week or so ago. Uh, in which uh, the Jewish Voices for Peace activists and some of these other Jewish groups have been jostled and pushed around and have videos very similar to this with Capitol Police officers or whatever police officers were there uh, by the White House. So it does seem to be a bit of a trend. Hmm.
0: Um, What do you make of the new polling numbers on support for ceasefire?
1: It's not surprising. I mean, they ticked up slightly uh, overall. I think it was 66 last time we discussed them, and now it's gone up to 68. It is interesting that this is—there is a bit of a uh, partisan split, but still half of Republicans also want to ceasefire, overwhelming majorities of Democrats, which raises the question. I mean, when you have people like uh, Brad Sherman, when you have um, other Democrats referring to these pro-peace protesters as pro-Hamas protesters, that's your constituency. I mean, fine, maybe you don't care about what Republicans think. But we're a, in the, a year before a general election, and the Democratic Party is making the choice not just ignore the protesters that are protesting outside, saying, hey, close—I mean, that's the point of this protest, right, to say close the gap between the—what what was it, 80 uh, percent of Democrats who want there to be a ceasefire? and the 4% of Congress who feels the same way, instead of saying, well, let me listen to you, let me credit this, to turn around and say, you guys are just pro-Hamas, I don't know if that's a very um, healthy election strategy.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know what um, what the, specifically that group has said you know, about the, uh, I, I've described, obviously, some of the protesters as pro-Hamas when I read their statements and how they feel about October 7th. I don't know that that describes this group. The, these uh,
1: Jewish voices for peace protesters. Sure. I mean, certainly the ADL has called these Jewish groups anti-Semitic. That's where we are right now, yeah. and so I do. I do
0: think it's a really powerful. Message. Well, I have. Ne- Thankfully, I have never taken the ADL's word <laughs> for what counts as anti-Semitic. Yeah, and, as,
1: as well, you shouldn't. Um, but the it is an interesting contrast that's happening here because so many of these protests are being driven by these young, not even not so young, Jewish activists who are really. Putting their um, their bodies on the line, and I think the tension between you know this identity politics world. I experience this as well as a black person advocating for certain things that I feel like are in the interest of black people, but against the interest of the Democratic Party identity. The Democrats love to weaponize identity in these ways to say, don't listen to what this person is saying. The real Jews, the real blacks are with us. And so as more and more and more of these Jewish protesters make themselves seen and heard, it'll be interesting to see whether the Democratic Party's narrative has to make any adjustments.
0: Hmm. Well, we'll have more to talk about on this subject later in the show, and we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Biden claims he was blunt with Chinese President Xi Jinping during a summit in San Francisco yesterday. The president touted three key areas of cooperation reached with the Chinese, including open communication, cracking down on fentanyl, and the future of AI. At a presser following his meeting
1: with Xi, the president said he welcomed the positive steps taken during the meeting and he looked forward to continuing to work with his counterparts in Beijing. However. None of those kind words and good feelings stopped Biden from calling Xi a dictator when prompted. Let's watch. After today, would you still refer to President Xi as a dictator? This
2: is a term uh, that we used earlier this year. Well, look, he is. I mean, he's a dictator in the sense that he, he is a guy who runs a country that is uh, a kind country that's based on a of government totally different than ours. Anyway, you know,
1: so uh, Michael Tracy pointed out, this is what he said. Earlier. He said, "Quote: mm-hmm. For all of the screeching about Trump allegedly destroying diplomatic relationships, I don't recall him ever doing so- something so widely boneheaded as blowing up a summit with China by calling President Xi a dictator while she was still physically present in the U.S. attending events."
0: So you mean this is like a this is a faux pas, like a
1: diplomatic blunder? Moreover, Biden's justification for why she is a dictator, what he, what Biden said, whatever you may or may not think about. China's democ- democratic uh, levers was that, quote, he's a leader of a government that's, quote, totally different than the U.S. Yeah, that's I, not much of an... Ex- if you're going to make well, a big claim like that, at yeah, very I, I least... Mean, I
0: I fully agree that Xi Jinping is a dictator. Biden's a little bit of a dictator, too. <laughs> I don't know if them, how that would go over here, but, I mean, it's a dictatorial country that locked people in their homes for COVID. Um, I, actually, I'm, I'm surprised maybe you don't think he should just tell the truth, or something? Wouldn't you, it, if he called Netanyahu a dictator, wouldn't you say that was a good thing?
1: Well, that's the question. Are you trying to be, um, dipl- are you actually trying mm-hmm. to have a diplomatic relationship with someone? Are you trying to actually get to, to, to de escalate yeah. what are ramping up tensions in? Uh, around uh, in China and the East. I mean, the New York Times story about this was accompanied by like a map of all of the ship movements and like the South China Sea. This is the c- circumstance we're in. So I think there is a time for diplomacy. There's a time about being honest about specific critiques that you have of a country and how mm-hmm. it's being run. And there's a time for a kind of um, gunslinging. Um, self-aggrandizing, you know, a kind of... Just
0: casually insulting people is probably not To what diplomatic
1: end? Now, if you want to say... I I don't, frankly, think that it's advantageous. My goal for someone like Biden and Netanyahu isn't for him just to name-call. It's to say, regardless of whether or not I approve of you, whether or not what you've done in terms of... um, um, uh, the, the, mm-hmm. the 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 protective shield that you formed around a, a coalition government in Israel right now is protecting you from mass outrage that Israelis have because they blame you for the security failure on October seventh. Whatever I think of that, you're the leader, and I need you to work with me to minimize civilian casualties and call it for a ceasefire in Gaza. Calling Netanyahu a poo-poo head doesn't seem to be, or a dictator or anything, doesn't seem to be well tailored to that end.
0: Trump, the contrast with Trump on this issue is uh, remarkable because Trump was always um, um, kind of boosting and saying nice things about yeah. kind of shady foreign leaders. Only I can even as as he, North Korea. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, and, and Putin and so on. Yeah. Um, that's kind of his style mm-hmm. is like a... Folksy camaraderie, mm-hmm. even the policies might be totally different, but that's what works if you're trying to <laughs> have good relations with the leaders of other countries. I-, I honestly think that's right. It shows that Biden doesn't really know what he's doing, frankly, I- and uh, or he's just too old. <laughs> and we're going to give him four more years of this, I guess, is what the Democratic Party has decided. So that's yeah. wonderful.
1: I- and I don't know if we have it, but many people also were circulating a video of a reaction shot of Anthony Blinken and what his face and body was doing when uh, yeah. Biden reacted to that statement. Now, obviously- Internally,
0: it was the F word.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like you could, I don't want, I want to, don't want to do like a Joy Reid body mm-hmm. language expert thing on this, but it did no, seem don't. like there was a bit of a cringe. I, I think we have it. President, after today, would you still refer to president Xi as a dictator? This is a term uh, that we used earlier this year.
3: Well, look, he is. I mean, he's a dictator in the sense that he, he is a guy who runs a country that is a communist country that is based on a form of government totally different than ours.
0: Anyway. You know- yeah.
1: But yeah, that, I, I wouldn't want to have to keep cleaning up
0: Biden's gaffes. Well, so this was already kind of a controversial visit. Uh, we talked about it previously that, um, you yeah, uh, California got really cleaned up for <laughs> Xi Jinping's visit. Can't get cleaned up for just Americans' own comfort and to deal with the um, homeless and drug addiction problem. But uh, but we're rolling out the red carpet for this dictator from across the across the pond. Yeah,
1: I mean the thing is about the way that she presents to the world. I, I doubt he's not one of these leaders is going to say something um, right. shady or inappropriate or continue to escalate. I, I think. There are people who present themselves yeah. as more rational actors, and then we have Joe Biden. And the irony is that we were told for years that yeah. Donald Trump was the one that was going to be the bull in the China shop, ruining all of our geopolitical relationships. And that's not to say that he didn't have some blunders, moving the, um, Im- uh, the consulate to Jerusalem, all of these kinds of provocations. He was not innocent. But I do think that the contrast between someone like Joe Biden and someone like Donald Trump
0: is blurring. And she is a Famously petty and vindictive individual to be clear, <laughs> um, you know, the whole Winnie the Pooh thing The you know the character Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, Winnie the Pooh is banned in China because oh. people made fun of that They look kind of have a similar you could draw the cartoon in she- a way it has a similar head size mm. to Xi Jinping <laughs> so there is no Winnie the Pooh in China for that reason <laughs> so that's, we'll pretty, see. that's pretty outrageous. We'll see how this uh, how this uh, continues, but I um, But the issue, I mean, the issues they were talking about are indeed important. Um, The the fentanyl problem, the A.I., obviously China ripping off our um, patents and copyrights and those kinds of things. Um, These are major issues in the Republican um, uh, primary, the perception that Joe Biden and Democrats, more broadly, are not um, handling China the right way. Obviously, the promise of China liberalizing, once it has more economic involvement with the Western world, has not materialized whatsoever. the, uh, that, you know, that kind of idea that they would like naturally cast off authoritarianism has actually their authoritarianism—they've they, they've done some backsliding over the course of our lives toward a more centralized um, state around the chairman, around Xi Jinping.
1: Yeah, the, the New York Times framed it as uh, Xi trying to uh, frame himself as a global leader declining to rank the U.S. versus China— Uh, economically or in terms of global power in a way that could be unflattering to the United States of America, saying that he thinks the Earth is big enough to accommodate both countries, Um, you know, uh, casting itself as, quote, a responsible global leader looking out for the interests of all nations. And you have seen in these moments um, where China has played a role in negotiating in various global conflicts over the last—you know, attempting to intervene in um, Ukraine, Ukraine, Russia, in ways that were, frankly— embarrassing to the United States that sees itself as the arbiter of these kinds of global interests it is interesting that feels like a different kind of soft power like i don't need to i don't need to scream that i'm number 1 the way that sometimes americans do it's just doing the thing it'll be interesting to see how this relationship continues to evolve is biden's comment, a reflection of a kind of insecurity or defensiveness, um, as it feels itself increasingly being compared to some, a country like China, oh. and not in the flattering way that we're used
0: to. Yeah, the U.S. is no longer the world's sole great power. We absolutely share that status with China, and uh, that's a reality we're going to have to live with for the foreseeable future and try to de-escalate tensions so they don't, we don't have war, at, while at the same time fixing some of these problems for which China is responsible. So, we will continue to monitor, and we'll have more rising right after this. Hamas and Israel are nearing a tentative deal to release 50 hostages, women and children, in exchange for Palestinians currently held in Israeli jails as well. There would be a pause in fighting for a few days and more aid coming into Gaza. That's according to a Washington Post report that was first published yesterday and then a report by The New York Times from just a few minutes ago. Israel has released a video yesterday purporting to show evidence that Hamas has been, in fact, storing weapons and military gear in al-Shifa hospital. Let's take a look.
2: What you will be able to see are, is military equipment. There is a, an AK-47, there are cartridges, am, ammo, Uh, There are uh, grenades in here, of course, uniformed, and all of this was hidden very conveniently. And when our troops opened this uh, closet here, which is in the main part of the clinic, this is what they found. These weapons have absolutely no business being inside a hospital. The only reason they're here is because Hamas put them here because they use this place like many other hospitals and ambulances and sensitive facilities inside the Gaza Strip for their illicit military purposes.
1: But uncaptured news journalist Dan Cohen chalks up the IDF's latest video as nothing more than failed propaganda, posting on X, quote, Israel said Hamas operates as a command center underneath al-Shifa hospital. Nearly a full day after invading it, Israeli propagandists show few, a few rifles and grenades that could easily have been planted in a blurred-out laptop, another huge failure uh, propaganda failure. Meanwhile, amid escalating calls for a ceasefire, a senior Israeli official seems to have contradicted Israel's stated objective of rescuing hostages. Axios reporter Barak Ravid took to X, where he posted this official quote. Said, he said that the purpose of the IDF operation at the al-Shifa hospital wasn't to rescue hostages, but to locate and expose a tunnel hub that connects with the connects the hospital rather with other parts of the Gaza Strip. Israel justified their raid of al-Shifa because of the stockpiles that were found. So this has been ongoing. The New York Times, which, again, has not exactly been Let's, let's say, overwhelmed with supportive coverage of the Palestinian view of things. It characterized uh, the al-Shifa raid so far as, as as such. It said, the Israeli army has not presented much evidence that Hamas used al-Shifa hospital as a base. A military spokesman said the search would take time. It's been reported that they're now saying that the tunnels that they'd hoped to have found were all cemented up, that because um, Hamas knew they were coming, they were able to Basically, plug all the, the tunnel system that they averred that they would find and have now not find. They've been now searching for uh, over 24 hours, and it's becoming increasingly looking less and less like there is a command base, which well, of course was the justification. We know
0: that. there were tunnels. There, There's Israel some, built there the tunnels. tunnels under the yeah. <laughs> under the facility when they were occupying in the 1980s, um, and there was fairly overwhelming evidence that they were using this hospital as a base in 2014. I know that even Amnesty International concluded that they were doing yeah, that. That's true, the although saw,
1: I did do some follow-up reading on that point. Um, uh, Norm Fingolstein actually advised me to read a chapter of his book where he talks about Amnesty International's coverage at that period being ha- coming under a lot of scrutiny. Uh, but that's just neither here nor there. I'm just going to put that out uh, there.
0: Yeah, um, so they found, they've said they found radio, tactical equipment, etc. I know some— People just are rejecting all of that. I don't know what to make of it. Um, of, of course, we should not instinctively believe what the government is showing us, and evidence can be planted. I mean, I find the 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 weight of the evidence, to me, tips toward that they were using this hospital in some capacity. Uh, I don't know to what extent. And it's certainly possible Israel could exaggerate it. Um, it's also, of course, possible that Hamas could be using it as a hospital and is lying about not doing so and tried to cover up that it was very active at the hospital. What else could be said?
1: So, one of the things that people had concerns of was this conflicting narrative of, well, if Hamas had time to close up the, the tunnel system that you had hoped to find, then why were the, these you know handful of guns that were kind of sporadically placed around the hospital? One of the caches of guns was allegedly found in a room with an MRI machine um, in a part of the hospital that was ostensibly being used. Uh, MRI machines obviously are expensive and useful and blah, blah, blah. Maybe it hadn't been used because the power was out. I don't know. A lot of things could be true. But it it obviously raised some eyebrows because famously there can be no metal in a room where an an MRI um, was used. So the implication is it was placed there in a more recent... Timeline, other people were scrutinizing the fact that uh, the IDF, one of the official Israel accounts, um, the At IDF on Twitter, had posted the video of the, uh, of the general doing the tour of the hospital, um, saying, no cuts, no edits, just the undeniable truth. Watch as Jonathan Cornicus exposes the countless Hamas weapons IDF troops have uncovered in the Shifa Hospital MRI building. They then deleted that post and reposted it with a section of the video edited out. Now, internet being the internet, was able to to quickly recapture what had um, been deleted. And the section of the video that was deleted was when they were zooming in on on a laptop that they alleged in the video was a ha- Hamas laptop, but on the screen of the laptop, a prisoner who was taken hostage on October that by Hamas on October 7th is, is shown posting on Facebook on the video. So it seems to co- conflict some of the narratives about who and when the hostages were taken, and perhaps that is why it was cut out of the video. But regardless, just the optics of saying, we're going to post something that's pure truth, uncut, unfiltered, then taking it down to re-edit it and put it back up was Suggesting that there is some sophistry happening on the part at least of the of the IDF account.
0: I think what this controversy shows really is that there's going to be no, frankly, dramatic moment where Hamas's top leadership is all killed or captured at one time. Like that maybe that was the fantasy here, that they're all this is like the last stand and they're all holed up and you take them out and then this violence can end and you've, you know, you've cut the head off the snake of this terrorist organization, um, that's just—that's not going to happen. They're diffuse, they're spread out, they're embedded in the population. And um, and if you're really going to try to totally take them out, it's going to involve a lot more bombing and death, at a point where that is clearly becoming unacceptable, at least, to. West spectators in America and elsewhere in the international community, and then it becomes: What are you going to do about that? Are you going to proceed anyway, um, or are you going to try to reach some other solution? I I don't know that Israel is willing to do anything else, um, given what happened on October seventh. But it uh, it underscores how difficult the situation is.
1: I I think that's right. Um, It's kind of remarkable that it's taken so long. I mean, so many of us have been asking this question. You know, how many. civilians will it take before um, Israel and the United States come to that very conclusion? And in response to that question, so many people have said, well, that's inappropriate to ask. But as we went to—from as many uh, Palestinian innocents being killed, as Israeli innocents were killed on October 7th, to doubling that number, to tripling that number, and now we're at 10 times that number, with 50 percent of that being children, almost, I think that becomes more and more pressing. And when an operation like this—which, again, Israel was very clear—they justified not just the bombing of this hospital, but all of these hospitals, because they said Hamas was not just there, not just that there was a member of Hamas that passed through, but that this hospital specifically was a command center, and that justified disrupting power and uh, gas in food, to this is the biggest hospital in Gaza that was treating an enormous number of patients and was a last line of relief for people and also provided shelter for people. You know, was it worth it is a question that is harder and harder, I think, for Israel and the United States as its backer to justify. And you saw, even just last night, um, President Biden made some additional remarks where he repeated—and this is a sensitive issue—but he repeated the line about decapitated babies. And it does start to increasingly feel like. I said on my radar yesterday, there is an emphasis on that kind of a narrative, on the quality of the crimes that Hamas is alleged to have committed, whether or not they've been proven, as the sheer number of deaths obviously militates in favor of seeing Israel's actions as exponentially more cruel, just numbers-wise. So then you have to focus on something other than the numbers.
0: Yeah, I think Israel is going to have to start asking itself questions about its intelligence, if it... I mean, they they want to take out Hamas, and and they just spent a lot of it. They sent in troops. They didn't they didn't just bomb this hospital. They actually launched a ground operation against it, which takes time and resources, and uh, and obviously was disruptive to the to the very necessary work that the hospital was doing. And apparently, Hamas had enough time to, in their version of events, escape through the tunnels and brick them up behind them. Um, does not speak well of. The Israeli government's planning of this war, even from a strategic standpoint, yeah. of just eliminating Hamas, no matter what yeah, it costs. Well, look, well you think, have to actually yeah. do that then. I
1: think the problem is, like when you read um, Norm Finkelstein's book on Gaza, it was remarkable is how much of it sounds exactly like the present, and it's such to beg the question: Is this just Israel's MO to say that there's going to be this base in a hospital that is never substantiated? It wasn't sub- substantiated in previous wars and in previous incursions. They say it. They don't allow humanitarian groups to independently investigate. The re- humanitarian groups write it up as, well, who knows? Well, and so then we keep just doing this over and over again. At the same but time- But Hamas is
0: somewhere, right? I mean, they 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 exist. They're hiding uh, somewhere. They have uh, hostages. Course.
1: So the question is, do you want to use the existence of Hamas, which again, as we've talked about, Bibi Netanyahu pip- pipered into leadership, do you want to use the existence of a Hamas to do a bombing campaign that mows the lawn and periodically kills thousands of Palestinian innocents, or do you want to work toward a longer-term solution that ends the occupation?
0: You know, and I think what they want to do is, what they s- state that they want to do is eliminate Hamas, but I'm saying right. they're not doing a very good job. But what we're
1: seeing is they, they planted an Israeli flag on the top of this hospital, like a conquering army. Is this about eliminating Hamas or is it about expanding Israeli territory? I mean, this,
0: these are the oh, questions should people are asking. be about Hamas, but more rising right after this.
1: Founder of The Young Turks, Cenk Uger announced his 2024 campaign for president against President Joe Biden last month, advocating for paid family leave, higher wages, affordable health insurance, and
0: more. 2024 Democratic presidential candidate Cenk Uger joins us now to break down the latest from his campaign. All right, Cenk, why are you running? And great to have you with us.
2: Thank you. Um, so uh, there's a very clear reason why I'm running. There's actually two reasons, but the first one and most important one is Uh, Shown by a new poll out yesterday, Quinnipiac, Biden's at 37% favorable, 59% unfavorable. Uh, If you think that Joe Biden is going to recover from being 22 points underwater, you live on a different planet. No political analyst in their right mind would say that this guy has a higher than 10% chance of winning. And you remove the names, Democrat, Republican, Biden, Trump, and you show any political analyst The current state of affairs with biden being down 24 points on the economy losing in almost every swing state down by 10 points to independence 15 points lower than when he barely beat trump in the electoral college last time and every analyst will tell you that guy is almost definitely going to lose so what i'm trying to do is basically grab the wheel of the titanic and move it move it let's go i'm not going to voluntarily run into this iceberg I don't care what every idiot Democratic leadership guy at the DNC in Washington thinks. Oh, I I bet the Titanic doesn't sink. I bet a guy at 37% can win an election. Well, that's just uh, feeding into Joe Biden's egomaniac. Uh, He's one of the most selfish politicians I have ever seen in my lifetime. He said that he'd be a transition president. He's 80 years old. 77% of Republicans don't even think he's going to make it through a second term. Get out of the race, Joe. That's why I'm in. And, you know, look, everybody else is too polite. you got to push this guy out. The only thing he cares about is his ego, ego, ego. I want to be a two term president. It's better for my legacy. Get out of the race, Joe. You're going to ruin the Democratic Party. You're going to ruin this country and you're going to hand it over to a fascist. That's the number one reason I'm in the race.
1: So I I take your point about Joe Biden. Completely, But I think the follow-up question that people are going to have is, why you, especially since there are other people challenging Biden already in the Democratic Party, including Marianne Williamson, who is already occupying a kind of left-leaning role, and Dean Phillips, who is running as a centrist, who's basically a younger version of Joe Biden. Why you?
2: Yeah. Uh, Do you see anyone making the points as loudly and clearly as I am? Uh, Look, I love Marianne Williamson. I think she's got terrific courage. She's been in this— from day one, and I think the press has been terribly unfair to her. And I like that Dean had the courage to come in, whether I, you know, and I agree with some of his stances like money and politics, but there's others that I don't agree with. But, and even if you say, hey, Jenk, I like one of those two better than I like you, fine, no problem. The more voices saying, Joe Biden, get out, you're at 37%, you egomaniac clown fool, get out of the race, the better, okay? For if, if I had my uh, druthers, I would have almost every Democratic governor in this race. They would all start 10 points higher than Biden. Why is the Democratic Party voluntarily starting 10 points lower? Because what, they don't want to offend the feelings of the beloved dear leader? What kind of weirdo authoritarian party did the Democratic Party turn into? And now the DNC is going around uh, the country trying to block me from the ballots. So apparently they think I'm the biggest threat. And I am, because I'm going to point out, I'm going to snap Washington and Democrats out of their trance. This guy is not it. I don't want to voluntarily lose to Donald Trump. And so, uh, look, I'm all over media making this case. If Marianne and Dean are making it too, great. If Whitmer and Pritzker and Shapiro want to come in, great. But let's go. Let's get a real candidate so we don't purposely lose to Donald Trump.
0: Can you talk to us about your uh, ballot access plans and overcoming um, the fact that you uh, were born in Turkey and the Constitution has a you know requirement that people for serving as president are born in this country, or maybe you dispute that or think that would be litigated before the courts? Um, can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, that's the second reason I'm in the race because that uh, ideology. I get where it comes from. People who think that uh, are are not don't have bad intent, right? We all learned in. Eighth grade, oh, my God, you got to be born in America. And what that led to is 25 million naturalized citizens. Every time we say we're not born here, people go, ha, ha, you can't run for president. Now, that's a tiny, minor thing. Most of those 25 million are not going to run for president. But that's not the point, guys. The point is, every time we hear that, and almost all of us have heard that hundreds of times in our lives, what we hear is, you're not one of us. You're a second-class citizen. You're not really fully American. And it, uh, that drives me crazy. I, and as soon as I started writing, I got nothing but text messages and emails from nationalized citizens going, yes, thank you for finally saying it. Why, do, why are we the only second-class citizens? It makes no sense at all. And on legal grounds, it is totally, utterly wrong. Uh, people say, well, oh, it's in the Constitution. Yeah, there's a lot of things in the original Constitution that aren't uh, pertinent anymore. For example, in the original Constitution, it said that uh, black folks were three-fifths of a person. If, if people went around go, it's the Constitution, it's the Constitution. That means they just don't understand the Constitution at all. There are well, things called amendments. What they right. do is amend the Constitution. The Fourteenth Amendment says very, very, very clearly, all persons born or naturalized have equal protection. They didn't say asterisks, they didn't say maybe, they didn't say, read my mind, I don't really mean equal when I say equal, and I don't really mean naturalized when I say naturalized. It's very clear, it's right there in the 14th Amendment, that has been amended out, and I'm going to fix that, I'm going to go to court, and I'm going to win.
1: But equal protection under the law and the right to run for president are two different things. So I don't actually disagree with you. I think in an ideal world, I too think that naturalized citizens be able to run for president. I think a lot of conservatives felt that way when they were angling for Arnold Schwarzenegger to potentially do a run. I, I have no ideological objection to it. But we did fight a civil war that was, to date, the bloodiest battle—a war that America has ever faced—in order to get the constitutional changes that you're describing. And in the event horizon of this 2024 election, I do think there's people who are going to ask, is it worth investing financially or emotionally in this campaign when the likelihood of that rule change going into effect before 2024 is so slim? Is this just a symbolic candidacy? And do we need another one of those when we have Jill Stein and Cornel West and Marianne Williamson and others in the race already?
2: Yeah. No. uh, So, first of all, like I said, that it's not a new thing we have to do. And this is really important. This is going to get resolved uh, well before the general election, because this is not a thing that takes a couple of years. When it comes to elections, the cases get expedited. So you actually don't have to worry about it. It is possible that I lose the court cases and everyone who's uh, donating to this effort at jankforamerica.com knows that right they know i'm a loud voice against biden they know that i would actually deliver for them given the opportunity and they know i'm trying to win these court cases and i have an excellent legal argument to make so i'm representing both the anti-biden faction and 25 million naturalized citizens that want me to do this and by the way uh everybody said oh it's impossible you can't do it except yesterday we got another ballot on arkansas what happened i thought you couldn't get on any ballots i thought every all the naysayers and all the doubters and all the haters. Thought that it was impossible. It turns out that when you try to actually fix things, it is possible. And if everybody in civil rights said, well, it's too hard, let's just not try, then we'd have never gotten anywhere. And yes, this is definitely a civil rights issue. And if you say, I don't care what 25 million naturalized citizens think, I'm going to just keep yelling at them, ha <laughs> ha, you're not one of us, you're not one of us, you can't lead us. You could, by the way, you could die for the country. We had 70 Medal of Honor winners who are naturalized citizens. That will take, but you being our leader, it can't happen because we don't trust you. We think you're disloyal and that you might sell us out to the Habsburg dynasty. It is irrational, it is immoral, and actually it is also unconstitutional. And we're gonna prove that in court, jankforamerica.com.
0: All right, Um, do you have feelings on uh, the the effort? I, I think of this because it's kind of similar to what you're saying. There's an effort right now to keep Donald Trump um, off the ballot on a kind of constitutional technicality argument that um, in the wake of the Civil War people who engaged in insurrection were not allowed to be um, to hold office uh, according to um, the amendments that passed into the Constitution and that that could be applied to Donald Trump and that's being litigated do you have um, thoughts and feelings
2: about that? I mean look look at the irony of this right the 14th amendment says nationalized citizens have equal protection, no asterisks, no, but no anything equal means equal. The 14th amendment also says, if you do insurrection against uh, America, you can't run. And the whole country, it feels like is saying, no, we should do the exact opposite of the 14th amendment. We should not treat naturalized citizens equally, but we should let insurrectionists run. Are people struggling with the English language? The 14th amendment is so clear. And so the question is, do you think Donald Trump did an insurrection? And as you know the, the details of the fake elector scheme, it is in, unquestionable that he did an insurrection. But I think that the states should be consistent. If you take, have the blue states leave him off the ballot, the red states put him, that's a mess. The courts need to resolve both of these 14th Amendment issues as soon as possible. And I would say that I have a 20 times better case, uh, 14th Amendment case than Donald Trump does.
1: Part of the lack of confidence in Joe Biden among his own voter base has to do with some foreign policy choices he's made of late. Uh, most recently, he referred to she uh, as a dictator. Uh, and, of course, he's been drawing quite a bit of criticism from his own party from not supporting a ceasefire in Gaza. How would you behave differently if you were president?
2: Oh, I would behave very differently. Uh, first of all, I would never spend, send Israel another $14 billion dollars to kill more innocent Palestinians. No way, that's not even close. I would then say no no more money to Israel at all, cut all of their funding until they end the occupation. So I don't want my money as an American taxpayer going to the slaughter of Palestinians. I have no interest in that. It's a moral culpability for all of us. And then later uh, people go, I don't know why Muslims hate us. I don't know why Palestinians hate us. I mean, we helped Israel kill 11,000 civilians already 10 times as many civilians as Hamas did. with The bombs we dropped on their children said made in the USA on them. But I don't know why they hate us. But well, that's why they hate us. Because we're, we're murdering their family members right now. We're aiding and abetting that. I would send Israel zero dollars. None. Zero. Don't get me wrong. The minute they end this war and they end the occupation and they stop keeping 5 million Palestinians as prisoners. Have 56 years of keeping these people as prisoners come on we're worried about the hostages right now that Hamas is holding and we should be we should also be worried about the five million hostages that Israel's keeping but the minute they end that moral blight on Israel then of course then bring back their funding we'd love to have Israel back as an ally I want Israel to be a beautiful prosperous loving country there needs to be a two-state solution but as long as they keep those hostages as long as they keep killing Palestinians no, we should not send them another dime. And by the way, the American people already agree with me. Overwhelming support for a ceasefire. The only people who don't agree are corrupt politicians in Washington. And are we pretending that the massive amount of money, APAC, Democratic Majority for Israel, defense contractors, and all the people that benefit from these wars isn't affecting Joe Biden? and isn't affecting every corrupt politician in Washington? Is that what we're all pretending right now? Yes, my policies would be very different than Joe Biden's. I would actually care about all human beings' lives, not select people.
0: Can you uh, speak to the situation in Ukraine and our
2: funding of the resistance to Russia there? So Ukraine's a different matter. See, in uh, Russia's the aggressor, they went in and have attacked, but by the way, unbelievably the russians have killed less children than the israelis have in gaza so i'm that doesn't give any uh pass to the russians it just shows you the depth of the brutality of netanyahu's right-wing government in israel i can't stand it in terms of ukraine i want to help them i want to support them the question is how much and how long and those are good questions that need to be further adjudicated by looking at the battlefield and understanding the entire conditions. But guys, also, when we send money to Ukraine or to Israel, it doesn't actually go to them. It goes to defense contractors. People misunderstand the power dynamics. Yes, APAC's a giant lobby. Yes, they should be called out. Yes, they're now doing a racist campaign against um, the black progressives and Muslim progressives in the, in the House. But the defense contractors are much larger. And then there are other factors at play. The oil companies are at play. They want a giant war the, because it increases their profits in, in an unbelievable amount. And by the way, Joe Biden is taking huge money from petroleum companies and we're all supposed to pretend that those bribes don't exist. They do exist. They're definitely bribes. And we need to stop the Democratic leadership for take, from taking nonstop bribes. And and so the main money goes to the defense contractors in both Ukraine and Israel. They, they take all of the profits they give a little bit of bribes back to all these corrupt politicians. And then they say, we're doing it for the people of Ukraine and Israel. So I don't buy it. I would analyze all of those budgets very meticulously before I sent more money.
1: Thanks so much for joining us today, Chang.
2: I appreciate it, guys. For America, uh, com and Joe, B- and sorry, Biden is going to lose.com. Biden is going to lose.com. <laughs> uh, snap out of it. He has no chance of winning. Let's get a real strong candidate to fight Republicans. I actually want to fight them, as opposed to Joe Biden who wants to take a nap.
0: Congressman James McGovern and Thomas Massey are leading 16 members of Congress in calling for the United States to drop charges and halt extradition proceedings against publisher and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange quote, we clearly have deep concerns about Mr. Assange's case, said the congressman. People should understand that the charges against him are part of an alarming global trend, a sharp increase in attacks against the freedom of the press that is happening in countries around the world, including our own. Some other notable names on the
1: bipartisan letter to the Biden administration demanding Assange's prosecution be dropped include Representatives Cory Bush, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Pramila Jayapal, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, Rand Paul, and many, many more.
0: So that's a pretty uh, mixed list of uh, some, you know, very vocal people on the left and also very right-wing people Mm -hmm. and um, some kind of libertarian-adjacent Republicans, um, who I'm glad to see sticking by principle and all coming together to support this very important cause that we talk about on the show a lot. I know it matters a lot to our viewers. Um, Assange has now been held for years in um, horrible conditions, now in—actually being held in prison now after he was kind of a captive in an embassy for mm-hmm. a long time. Now mm-hmm. he's in prison. The U.S. has been seeking his extradition. Um, the Biden administration has done—is seeking that, has done nothing for him, and the Trump administration before that, and so uh, And—and so on. Uh, even as so many people on all sides of the political spectrum recognize this as about fundamentally free speech and journalism, that Assange um, did not did not steal, did not illicitly obtain, or commit a crime to obtain the information he obtained. He merely published mm-hmm. what he obtained, and that is not a crime. That is not a different. That is not different from anything. Mainstream journalism uh, ac- tries to accomplish, and yeah. he he informed the American people that their government was lying to them, spying on them, et cetera. These were important services for which he deserves con- um, commendation, instead he's gotten condemnation.
1: Absolutely, I couldn't have said it. I couldn't have said it any better. And it is such an interesting time for this push to drop the charges to be made. We're having so many conversations right now about limitations on speech that are provoked or seem to have been provoked by a desire to shut down dissent around what's going on in the Middle East. You've seen across Europe, in particular, efforts to ban protests altogether—pro-Palestinian protests, I should say, not pro-Israeli efforts uh, Suela Braverman, the um, uh, official in the U.K., who was leading the charge on banning, um, displaying uh, Palestinian flags and the like, just lost her job. So there does seem to be a a, a turn that's happening, as I think I mentioned earlier this week, that after making it illegal to take this position, Macron is now demanding a ceasefire as well. So there are shifts that are happening. But let's not forget that the initial impulse over the course of the last month in so many countries, including our own. Well, you, you see this with uh, Ron DeSantis and the infringement on speech and the right of these Palestinian groups to be groups at colleges in Florida. You see this with Kathy Holkel. There is a real, censorious atmosphere that's happening in the United States of America. And contrast that with all of the things that we know about our own government's misdeeds abroad and domestically because of Julian Assange and
0: WikiLeaks. Uh, just uh, on the, the latest news for the protesters in Florida, the DeSantis thing, so the colleges have decided not to enforce that because they consulted attorneys who said that if you enforce this, probably the administrators who do enforce it can be sued mm. um, because it would violate the First Amendment, so they decided not to do it.
1: Well, that's good news. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. So I, I was just, I went to uh, Rand Paul's um, Senate page. And he he writes of this letter urging Biden to stop taking action against Julian Assange. It's the duty of journalists to seek out sources, including documentary evidence, in order to report to the public on the activities of government. The United States must not pursue an unnecessary prosecution that risks criminalizing common journalistic practices and thus chilling the work of the free press. We urge you to ensure that this case be brought to a close in as timely a manner as possible. And that gets to the, the crux of this, which is that Julian Assange has been treated as if he's like not a journalist or Mm -hmm. the work he's doing is not journalism. But there's no, um, there's no, there's no, the First Amendment doesn't recognize a journalism credential. You don't need to get a license. You don't need to, anyone engaged in the work of journalism is a journalist. And I think that's why, obviously he's gotten some support in the mainstream media. There have been um, some calls, uh, people have, have, have uh, have defended him and, and called for him to be released. Um, I, I think there, there's been an increasing lack of interest in his case from some of the, and you know, some of that is just it fading from the headlines. I think some of it is his cause actually being taken up by some more right-wing figures. Mm-hmm. Um, and then seeing as like, oh, this is a right wing figure because he has that pers- he was very anti Clinton and there's well, know, that pro- that was Clinton it sentiments. from the beginning.
1: It felt like I, mean, I remember a very disappointing interview uh, that AOC did at the Intercept. It would have been I think January of 2021 where she was being asked uh, interviewed by Jeremy Scahill, about a lot of things and a uh, kind of a throwaway question toward the end was about Julian Assange. Now this was not years and years ago before anybody knew about Assange or had time to vet any of the charges against him that the. You remember, there was a, this Me Too charge against him that put a lot of people off. But she alluded to exactly that, like, oh, I think there's some personal things that I, he's been through that I don't know that, that I will—it was like one of these kind of non-answers that was very disappointing at the time. So I agree with you that some of those you know, political or kind of cultural factors I think have been a barrier to getting broad public support. But I do feel like most of that is in the rearview window and that now people see this and are talking about this as a pure speech issue especially I got to say since Chelsea Manning's sentence was commuted by Obama there is this weird asymm- asymmetry here yeah. between why why is it that Julian Assange the one who's purely purely in a journalistic capacity uh, the one that's suffering the bulk of the harm. And even if you thought he deserved some punishment, which I obviously do not, at this point, after
0: he's been— yeah, he's been punished.
1: … punished for years and is in a high-security prison right now in the U.K., suffering—we talked to his brother recently from the mental health strain, he has a young family—at what point are you not just going to let this go? And what are the political costs to not letting him go? It does seem like Biden could use a real win right now. It's not clear what the voter coalition of people who would actually disapprove of this are. So why not also yeah. take the opportunity to buy, get a little
0: buy-in, a little trust with your voters? Trump made it sound like he was possibly going to do it, and then he and then he didn't go through with it. Um, he was a little distracted, I think, following <laughs> the, his election loss. Um, which was a real shame because uh, actually a lot of his supporters mm-hmm. um, wanted him to. F- Tucker Carlson lo- lobbied for uh, Julian Assange to be freed, um, talked about it on his show, mm-hmm. actually, and we covered recently. He has now gone to visit Julian Assange, I think, to do an episode about mm-hmm. it. So, and you know, Tucker was was and is to some extent well, like the most important conservative commentator. So um, it just it seems like it would it would please. A lot of people, and the only downside is annoying, like, deep state national security expert class people who, who no one likes anyway. Yeah,
1: I say annoy them. Annoy
0: them. <laughs> Proceed. So, yeah, really hope to—obviously, we've been hoping and then being disappointed for a long time. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know— Yesterday was the was the best day to release Julian Assange, and tomorrow is the the next next best best day. day,
1: Yeah, let's see if um, some of these uh, Trump challengers perhaps uh, take up this charge. It could be an interesting way for them to start to distinguish themselves because they're running out of time to make the case as to why they'd be a better candidate than Donald
0: Trump. I I doubt we'll hear anything encouraging from Nikki Haley (laughs) or Chris Christie on this. Yeah, Um, maybe Vivek. The Sanis Vivek? I don't know. Yeah. we have to wait to see. I'd like to know what they think about it. More Rising right after this. Taking advantage of some internet drama, Tucker Carlson has featured Candace Owens as his latest guest on his X show. The pair covered a bunch of topics, including Owens spat with Ben Shapiro, who works with her at The Daily Wire, about the Israel-Hamas conflict. They also talked about Nikki Haley's appalling attacks on free speech. Now, Owens has claimed that Shapiro was the one who crossed the line with ad hominem attacks. Let's watch.
3: I can't respond to it on a level of intellect because there, there's nothing that he has expressed, in that, at least in that short clip, that he fundamentally disagrees with in terms of what I said. But I will say that... I'm not going to respond with the same ad hominem attacks. Yes. I don't think it helps further discussion. And it, if I, that was me, that was caught on a video saying that about colleagues that I work with, I would be embarrassed. I would. So I think that the video speaks more to Ben's character than it speaks to mine.
0: The two then discussed Nikki Haley's authoritarian positions on privacy online. Owens accused Haley of not really running for president, but running for positions in the private sector afterwards. Let's take a look.
3: Well, Nikki Haley is someone that I would describe as, as radical. She She's a yeah. radical in this moment, and she's trying to present her opinions as not radical by hiding behind a terrorist attack, and it's not going to age well. So right now in this moment, people are like, this rhetoric is totally fine. You're going to look back in a year, and people are going to say, actually, this was kind of crazy. Some of the things that she said, you know, she, in 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 my view, has become increasingly radical every time she even hits the debate stage. I don't even know, you know, what country she's running for president in. Right. And I think Vivek Ramaswamy called her out accurately and based on even my own personal experiences with her, which I've documented on my podcast as somebody who isn't looking to actually win president, doesn't want to become president of the United States. What she's looking to do is to secure certain contracts um, after she leaves the stage and, and she loses.
1: Mm-hmm. So as we talked about yesterday, this was all prompted by a, a video of Ben Shapiro caught on camera saying that Candace Owens had a faux sophistication about the issue of Israel-Palestine um, And you know basically calling what her beliefs Although disgusting be
0: I'm not hundred percent on the timeline here They might have filmed this before that happened. I don't know.
1: Uh, well, it not exactly how this It not like she was alluding to that She said if I were caught on camera um, yeah. saying what he had, was caught on camera saying about a colleague then I would be embarrassed about that. I'm not sure what else that could Right, but
0: wasn't the Bible verse thing in response to something else?
1: No, I I didn't think so. I thought it was all stemming from that first um, TikTok uh, clip. But so now we've had this escalation, even since we recorded yesterday, where there's been this exchange of volleys on the Internet. So we read the Bible verse yesterday. Um, Ben Shapiro's comeback seems to be uh, to try to perhaps urge her to quit, tried to tempt her into quitting. Uh, he quote-tweeted her Bible verse saying, Candace, if you feel that taking money from the daily wire somehow comes between you and God, by all means quit. She responded, saying, you have been acting unprofessional and emotionally unhinged for weeks now, and we have all had to sit back and allow it and have all tried to um, have all tried to exercise exceeding understanding for your raw emotion, but you cross, into, uh, cross a certain line when you come for Scripture and read yourself into it. She elsewhere said, I can I can quote the Bible. It's not about you.
0: They yeah. They would be making a huge mistake to fire her. So obviously. Uh- I don't know the exact leadership structure at The Daily Wire. Ben Shapiro is, like, the co-founder of it. I, I, I think he might have an editor-in-chief emeritus title. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's technically in charge, but maybe he still maybe he sits on the board or something. It's him and Jeremy Boring, mm-hmm. um, and I believe Jeremy Boring took a leave of absence from the company to help make some of those films, those documentaries, mm-hmm. the anti-woke Snow White movie, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. So I don't know who exactly is in charge. They'd be making a huge mistake to get rid of Can- uh, Candace Owens because then she'll say, you effectively canceled me for mm-hmm. my view which is their whole—I think that will be very toxic for their brand. So they shouldn't do that. So you're right. Instead, he's trying to induce her to quit. Um, Look, I think disagreement between colleagues is healthy, obviously. (laughs) Um, uh, I mean, it's a little different on our show because it's set up as a debate show. They're supposed to be kind of ideologically— they're all conservatives, they're all right, uh, right-wing people, but that demonstrates that there is a real difference of opinion on foreign policy, on national security, on the right. There, There is the, um, I guess, Ben Shapiro, Nikki Haley wing that thinks no amount of, of support to a foreign government um, allied with us is enough, and that the American taxpayer should stomach that forever, because it's very important, and then there's a Tucker— Candace, and also a lot of other people, um, who think that it's it's almost a red flag to care so much about another country's security when there are so many problems at home that we can't seem to find solutions for, ways to pay for, and the American people are um, ha- you know have have um, have uh, inflation problems, and housing problems, and medical problems, and drug addiction problems, and um, and crime issues some in some places, and those things aren't being dealt with, but when uh, when a foreign country suffers an admittedly horrific terrorist attack for which you and I disagree on what the proper response is from the people involved in the conflict but on what our responsibility is I, moral you know moral support they want to Purchase supplies from us, that's fine by me, but I don't see it being healthy for U.S. national security to be more involved in a conflict in the Middle East. That's a lesson we've learned over and over again, and that is the difference between a Candace Owens and a Ben Shapiro right now.
1: Yeah, what I didn't realize about Ben Shapiro, I thought this was just an isolated issue because he has always been very committed to the hawk. project of Zionism. I didn't realize he also felt the hawk. same way about uh, Ukraine. I didn't realize he was one of the few kind of, no, we got to keep funding Ukraine yeah, he's folks a hawk. on that side of the aisle or that corner of the of the political spectrum. So at least he's, at least he's consistent, but I got to say, Candace Owens— is incredibly right, from my perspective, on this issue. Her description of Nikki Haley, her warning about how this is going to look with the passage of time and the lessons that we should have learned from the post-9-11 era are right on and are exactly what you could hear out of any uh, peace movement actor, any leftist, any, any, any person on the other side of the ideological divide. And it is no accident that she has found herself paired up with Tucker Carlson in this moment, who was one of not just the few, if not only, voices on Fox News that advanced that kind of narrative. He, in some ways, is ground zero for that belief system having the legs to Mm -hmm. really grow, um... Uh, because he had the platform of fa- Fox yeah. News to basically make it okay, or to give a signpost for other conservatives who might have felt that way to say, "Yes, we are actually a part of a movement."
0: Yeah, and because he didn't create those feelings mm-hmm. in the base or, or on the right, those feelings existed. The, in fact, they were probably more popular at all times than the kind of neoconservatism mm-hmm. that um, that uh, Ben Shapiro represents. But they had no—they didn't have the same um, access and outlets. Mm -hmm. They didn't have the same amount of credibility, and they didn't have someone, a a very influential, popular figure, who was making those points until um, Tucker came along. Obviously, they had— they had some of them. Ron Paul was a was a a big influence on on the you know in between libertarianism and conservatism, in speaking to those issues. Had more you know military supporters than anyone else when he ran for president in two thousand eight. Um, you know had had uh, had could could fill stadiums and et cetera with with his uh, with his supporters from right and left who agreed on a different foreign policy, and that has left its mark and led to the rise of Trump, frankly, and the, and the counter-programming, counter-narrative on foreign policy. Yeah. So this is interesting seeing it kind of spill out in the open in, internally to one admittedly very vast um, conservative media empire um, where they're, where the split on this is is pretty pronounced. Yeah. Well, the the pair also
1: dove into the backlash at universities where donors began pulling funding surrounding, quote, anti-Semitic protests on campus. Let's look at that.
0: However... Then I thought, well, wait a second. If the biggest donors at say Harvard have decided, well, we're going to shut it down now, where were you the last ten years when they're asking and the for white genocide? You were allowing this. And then I found myself really hating those people. Actually, that you're okay with that. On what grounds were you okay with that?
3: And I, this is what I've been trying to explain to the pro-Israel lobby, that what you are seeing as lack of support is people that are asking the question is, where were you yeah. <laughs> as we have endured all of you this? You were paying
0: for it, actually. Right. You were paying for it.
3: You were you were paying for it. You were calling okay my it.
0: children immoral for their skin color. You paid for that. Yeah, and and so why shouldn't it. I be mad at you? I don't understand.
3: And so that is, you know, obviously you have a, a ton of white people that are asking this question and they're now being called anti-Semitic and i think that that's wrong i think these are meaningful questions that deserve to be answered why was this uh, this sort of verbiage allowed into the curriculum i mean could you imagine if in the curriculum it said that every every jewish person born is a terrorist
0: yeah i i i said i think i said the exact same sentence as tucker there on a well where have you been for the last 10 years you're outraged as a donor now but these universities have been engaged in policies that are hostile to um, to the right for for years and years and years, Harvard systematically just had to be ordered by the Supreme Court to stop, um, abjectly discriminating against Asian students, and no one cared. Now you're upset. And I think that's the, the feeling there.
1: I, I, I don't understand the confusion. A Jewish group doesn't want what they perceive to be Jewish interests, their Israeli interests, it's Zionism, but a Jewish group— says it, it's mad when something bad, in their view, happens to Jewish
0: people. Mm-hmm.
1: Why should they be invested in anything that happens to any other group? it's an interest
0: group, well, right? Well, like, I don't really, understand why that's okay, so confusing. Well, well also on the right and the libertarian right were also opposed to that kind of collectivist identity politics-based thinking.
1: That's not true. People very much feel like collectivist identity-based thinking. It's their identity and their collective feeling. That's why the frustration to me is that everybody weaponizes identity. Not that I'm only mad when black people do it or only mad when Jewish people do it. You have to be consistent. There is a white identity. Tucker Carlson's whole spiel is that this is a white Christian nation, that it's being changed, that it's striking at the heart of the the both racial and cultural and ethnic identity of this country, and that we have to stop it by changing our immigration laws, deporting human beings, doing population control in in various ways, et cetera, et cetera. That's like the whole—that is what the Great Replacement Theory is that he has been criticized for by people across the spectrum for the last couple of years.
0: Right. My criticism of his views vis-a-vis the Great Replacement Theory is that— um, the people coming into the country are not actually as hostile to conservative or right wing values as the, the the theory would have them be. The the if you're afraid of um, of uh, you know of of. Uh, Like bad ideas harming our country or bad cultural practices. They're they're homegrown In fact, they are manufactured at these elitist universities where the wealthiest most educated people are So I like I would rather I would rather have more immigrants coming in and more elite Ivy League uh, college administrators exiting, and um, the, and let's, I think if I put it that way to Tucker, he might agree with me. But I
1: think I we don't have know. to be really clear about what's happening. We're talking about elite universities, right now. Right. The most wait racist. A minute. Wait a minute. Right now, billionaires, billionaires are withdrawing funds from Harvard University. I wish wait they'd a done minute. it sooner. That's what Because I'm students, these elitists that are supposed to be the root of the problem, these blue-haired hippies, the students are the ones in groups like pe- uh, Jews for Palestine and, and People for Palestine. All of those groups that are standing up to the establishment of the university, standing up to the establishment of this country. So people's wires are getting crossed. Who's the elitist here? Is it the Harvard students and their wokeness and their safetyism? Right now, we have primetime anchors, like Jay Tapper, interviewing um, uh, a minority of students, like this Jewish student at MIT, who says she feels unsafe at campus because the rest of the students, in large numbers, are protesting the... Hawkish establishment um, pro, they're framing, genocidal acts of both the U.S. government and our client states across the world. If specifically in this case in Israel, and so it's it, it's a completely confused message that's coming out of the right right now. They feel like oh, identity, something, 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 but like. There are, there are Harvard people on both sides of this, and the Harvard people that you purport to not like right now—the Wexlers, the millionaires, and billionaires—are the ones that are both funding all of these right-wing news sources and establishment liberal news sources as well—don't get me wrong—and who you have not had a problem with until they start to have an ideological divide with you over these narrow issues.
0: Let me just—this is what I think the conservatives' sure. position on this is, is that you um, wealthy uh, Jewish donors— are now want to withdraw funds because what you, you you perceive that there's a lot of anti-Jewish race there in their view this is anti-Jewish racism. Sure. Yeah. So so we're going to withdraw funding because we don't endorse this. And what I think Tucker was getting at, and I, people on the right are getting at, is that well you only care n- now, but these universities have practiced racism against white people. But and it, can- let me just but minute, let me. Minute, minute, okay, let me I'm minute. sorry. I'm sorry. White people and Asian people for years, and you didn't care about that. You only cared when it was your people, Jewish people. Yeah. And so we're not sympathetic to that. That's what, yeah, what conservatives no, are saying. I, I get that. You should have, been, you should have disinvested from the university because they're but bad at Why addresses. are you
1: surprised at that? Like We've been talking about this for years. Why is it that a million celebrities say a bunch of bigoted, racist, hom- homophobic, horrible things every, every day of the week, mm-hmm. but Kanye West gets debanked for his anti Semitism. Sure. He's not the only anti Semit in America. I, I can't. Right. I can I mean, We're I don't striving hate to break for, to you. A, for
0: an ideological consistency that is based in actually non racism. Sure,
1: but this is why I have a problem with this always being framed in these identity terms, whether it's these. Um, people like Tucker Carlson doing white identity politics or liberals doing uh, people of color are our friends' uh, identity politics. It's a power issue. This isn't about, you know, Jewish special interests or anything crazy and anti-Semitic like that. People in power are always going to protect their interest, whatever they perceive their interest to be. The investment of the United States in Israel isn't about having a, like, a love relationship with Jewish people. And you see that when you see how these Jewish protesters are being attacked and harassed by the police all over the country. You see that when they invite a known anti-Semite like John Hagee to, to speak at the pro-Israel rally earlier this week. What it's about for Christian evangelicals like him is, like, scripture that says that Jesus won't come back unless Jewish people right. are in the Holy Land, and what it is for our government is about having an outpost, a client state, in the Middle East, in oil and in, 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 in str- geopolitical strategic interests. So I do wish that sometimes people like Tucker Carlson would focus more squarely on that and stop trying to make confuse the message by saying, OK, but why? why? Why, why weren't you withdrawing money and being more hateful against when X group was at issue or where Y group was at issue because it's also self-interested.
0: That's the left view. The right view is that these people should not (laughs) be, uh, is that don't come crying to us now that your identity group. is is Yeah it's it's interpersonal. Like the
1: the the left view, you're right, is not that my identity politics is better than your identity politics.
0: Okay, that's not Not the right view. Again, the right view is that these donors are engaged in identity politics and we're rejecting that.
1: I think the donors are protecting their interests, which is what donors do. Which yeah, is why we're, not, you should... we're not disputing
0: that. Yeah, we're just I, uh, okay, we're we're not criticizing that from a different Yeah, I'm, I'm just saying,
1: don't be surprised, Tucker Carlson. This is what donors do. And if you don't want to be caught up in the vagaries of what billionaire donors do, don't invest and don't allow them to be the ones that are funding universities. You need to have, I'm sorry, the, the, the state funding of these kinds of institutions so you're not able to get jerked around in these sorts of ways. And that's the same for media institutions, too.
0: Yeah, we do, absolutely do not want that on the right, but we don't have time to get into that. More Rising right after this. New Hampshire is defying President Joe Biden. The Granite State announced on Wednesday January 23rd will be the date of its presidential primary after Biden and the Democratic National Committee's plans to give South Carolina the party's first primary contest. This move also sets up the second GOP contest of 2024, eight days after the Iowa caucuses.
1: This comes as new polling from Yahoo and YouGov Today finds more than half of Democrats said they want to see someone other than President Biden make a bid for the White House next year. The president is also trailing his chief challenger, Donald Trump, ever so slightly, 44 percent to 42 percent, though 9 percent of poll respondents were unsure of who they would vote for, and another 5 percent said they were not planning to vote at all. 42 percent of respondents said Trump's criminal charges were a bigger problem than Biden's age, while 41 percent said the opposite. 73 percent of Democrats at the president's age was a problem for them as well. So, we've seen time and time again. Okay, So, it is interesting to see that there are still a lot of people, as much as we talk about Biden's age, there are quite a few people who are similarly concerned about um, uh, Donald Trump's indictment.
0: Yes. And and that's not just vibes in the polls. It has been shown, frankly, in these election results. Um, The midterms, as I've said many times on the show, were, frankly, a disaster for Republicans. Um, The the incumbent party, the Democrats—typically, is the the incumbent party does bad during that equivalent midterms historically. The inflation was a really big issue. The economy seemed, frankly, in worse shape than it is now.
1: At least voters um, definitely feel that way. They the were outlet. saying that,
0: yeah. yes. Um, so we were expecting uh, – we were expecting – better news in the Senate and even better news in the House, even though Republicans did take back the House. And uh, and it was clear that in some of these these swing states, like Arizona, Georgia and Pennsylvania, um, the candidate quality on the Republican side mattered. And that candidate quality was a problem because of Donald Trump's um, stolen election mm-hmm. narrative being exerted on them.
1: Yeah. And i, I got to say, New Hampshire, right off the bat, was furious, not to anthropomorphize a state, but the people of New Hampshire, the representatives of New Hampshire, were furious at this DNC state. They demand the right to pick (laughs) the next president for
0: some reason. This is a special ability Iowa and New Hampshire deserve. They can't be taken away from them. It doesn't make any sense.
1: Whatever you think about the underlying merits of it, I think we can all agree that the DNC's choice to do this now was a cynical bid. And framing it as, um, this is about diversity, we want South Carolina to go first because it's a more racially diverse state than New Hampshire, um, seemed to be they know that uh, South Carolina is a state where Joe Biden has historically done very well, where Jim Clyburn, uh, who is going to throw his uh, backing behind Joe Biden, and something like 60 percent of all South Carolina voters said that they they voted for Joe Biden specifically because Jim Clyburn told them to. So it's a state that the DNC has much more control of yeah, over. It's
0: a, it's a favorite state for Biden, and this is totally him trying to stack the deck. That is absolutely, absolutely true. At the same time, it's also true that it's <laughs> totally ridiculous and arbitrary that Iowa and New Hampshire have so much power over the nominating process because they get to go first every year, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and those states are so utterly unrepresentative. And Iowa, in particular, exerts actually a very negative influence, in my view. It you know depends what your policies are, but it forces, particularly on the Republican side, it forces um, a lot of deference to farm subsidies mm-hmm. uh, as policy that are not policies I support. I don't support any subsidies whatsoever under the Son, in any circumstances. Um, So it affects Republican policy a lot in a bad way, in an unhealthy way. Well,
1: I do think—I like this argument um, that uh, New Hampshire State Secretary uh, Scanlon uh, made. He said that there is a different kind of diversity that you could care about, the fact that it's really easy to to, uh, get on the ballot uh, in New Hampshire, that uh, there's some economic diversity there. He says it costs $1,000 to register as a presidential candidate in New Hampshire, and that fee can be waived under certain other requirements. Um, So there's an accessibility argument that can be made. I think there's an argument that if you have smaller states, go first. If you are a lesser-known candidate, then you can glad hand and shake hands and try to make yourself known and get national attention that had been denied to you once you win that state. And I do think, we got to say, there are a number of people in this race right now challenging Joe Biden that are very much hoping for that to be the case. If you look at uh, New Hampshire— Polls: Marion Williamson's been, been spending a lot of time in the state. Um, so far, a plurality of Democratic voters, 44%, are still undecided in New Hampshire. About 27% plan to write in Joe Biden. 15% plan to vote for Dean. Because he's not even
0: on the ballot. He's not even trying. That. No.
1: Yeah. yeah. 15, but he still could win, yeah. <laughs> according to this. 15 percent plan to vote for Dean Phillips. He's got a lot of money in this. Um, he's one of these uh, multimillionaire billionaires uh, who's self-financing their campaign. And Marion Williamson's at 10 percent. 5 percent say they would vote for somebody else. So that—you know, you might want to yeah. see better numbers from uh, the non-Biden candidates in the state, given that he's not even on the ballot. But there's still a whopping 44 percent of people who are undec- undecided.
0: Yeah, the problem is that you—it's hard to design— a primary system or pick a state and have it be really fair to everyone. We they're, could both they're... all
1: on the same day. What a, What well, an idea. Well,
0: <laughs> sure, but then actually that would not help the smaller candidates, right? No, it wouldn't. It, it, that, that's the problem. Like, it, In some world, I think it might be ideal to do some kind of regional... Balance or like you have four, maybe four states go at the same time at the beginning and spread them out. But again, as you said, for these Marianne Williamson type people who want to concentrate in New Hampshire and then have a a win there and catapult that to a bigger, uh, to more prominence, that hurts them too. This is really hard to find a. It would have really helped a Bernie
1: Sanders style candidate in 2020 if all of the primary states have voted at the same time. Someone like Pete Buttigieg only became a sort of plausible reality because he managed to eke out an. Arguable win that's still hotly debated. I think in think they're Bernie still circles. they're still counting that one. They're still counting <laughs> right. that. What a disaster!
0: Truly, that was embarrassing. And then
1: states like California, which were huge wins for Bernie Sanders, ended up grayed out on the on the on the maps mm-hmm. for a very long time for some weird technical reason. So when you look at the maps forever, you, you know you see oh he's not doing really well anyway. Why should I even bother? And that has a really important psychic effect uh, on these kinds of races. So. I don't know exactly what to do about it, but I do think that much more attention is going to be paid to uh, New Hampshire from this point on, given that there's some certainty around the fact that they are still uh, they not bidding the game. Moving ahead.
0: <laughs> I remember Michigan did something similar in, God, what year was that? I think that was 2000. It must have been it was when I was in college. So it must have been after 2000. It must have been approaching 2008, I think. They <laughs> jumped the primary queue. Um, And the RNC punished them I believe because I was living in I'm from Michigan I was living in Michigan. I was at the University of Michigan at the time I think it was like it was actually the first column. I think I'd ever written for the student newspaper was about that primary shift Can't remember what I said about it. You can probably Google it somehow, and we can look, up. I probably had some opinion that makes no sense to me now. Baby Suave's but, um, first opinion. That was the beginning of my career as a journalist. I had no intentions to get into journalism until So then.
1: when I get into the time travel machine to go and make it so that you never- Oh <laughs> no! I kid! Oh. I kid, of course, Robbie. Oh, Evil what? Brianna. Like, what was Falcon that date again? You said yes. 2008. <laughs>
0: uh-huh. I see. Yeah, and then, and then you'll have to come, and then another version of you will come, <laughs> because things will turn out even worse, and you have to sit yes. down next to Ben Shapiro, (laughs) and then you come to assassinate the earlier time-traveling Brianna. That feels great. We all know that's how it's going to go down. Um, Well, that is as good a time as any (laughs) to wrap it, to wrap the week for us here at Rising. Uh, We will be off tomorrow as our usual Friday co-hosts fill in. And we will be back next week. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you
1: never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the move, We're now available anywhere you
0: listen to podcasts. Don't get caught in a time travel paradox and become (laughs) your own great, 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 great (laughs) grandfather. Stay safe out there. (laughs) Bye-bye.